Sermons are kind of an interesting thing, right? I mean, whether I'm there with you in the building or, or not, you're pretty much just sitting there listening to me talk about the Bible. Uh, and so my challenge in doing that is to find a way for this to, to kind of connect to, to you guys and to what you're doing and what's going on in your life. Now, obviously I've been to seminary. You don't get all these fancy clothes without having done that. Uh, but even before I went to seminary, the first thing, the very first thing I was ever taught about preparing a sermon was that any sermon you preach really has to follow one specific pattern. I mean, sure, you can, you can change things up here or there, you can have some fun with it, you can play around, but there is one thing I was told that you should always stick to when you're preparing a sermon, and it's this. Start positive and end positive. The, the theory behind this, or so I was told, was that if you don't end your sermon on a positive note, then the people in your congregation are going to walk away from the sermon feeling emotionally unsettled or even disturbed. If you don't end on a really strong, supportive, positive note, people will end feeling as though the Word of God, or at least the pastor, has just attacked them rather than uplifted them. And of course, the opposite, the inverse, is said to be true as well. You don't start your sermon off as anything other than positive either. Because if you really just hit people with a massive downer right at the front, they'll be too distracted to hear anything else you might have to say. Now, <laughs> As any of you guys who have ever heard me preach ever before can attest to, I've never really been good at following that advice. Uh, fun anecdotes, testimonies, other personal stories, long-winded rants about used book sales. Uh, these things can all be worthwhile. They can be helpful, I think, if they're being used to establish a kind of narrative context, a, a story within a story that you use to build a connection, a bridge between the biblical message and the congregation you're preaching to. But if the only reason you're telling fun stories is to spare the emotional labor of your listeners, if the only reason you're telling fun stories is to prevent people from feeling spiritually or emotionally challenged, I think then we cross the line from education to condescension. We start handing out candy when what we're supposed to be doing is feeding people. I mean, we don't come into this space just to be encouraged, to be told how awesome we are at all this God stuff we're supposed to be doing in our lives. We don't come to church looking for a savior just to fill the role of yes man to our own inflated egos. And we certainly don't come here to exchange a painful reality for a comforting lie. We should come to church ready to be challenged, ready to confront ourselves, ready to practice self-awareness and self-correction, ready to learn and to change and to grow into the people God always meant us to be, rather than the broken and imperfect creatures we already are. 
Which is why, of course, I feel confident starting out today, not with a fun anecdote or a silly story or with one of my many, 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 many absurd Star Trek Easter eggs, uh, but by jumping right into one of the most really depressing, one of the most challenging, and honestly, one of the most terrifying topics we have in the church. Something that's been hanging over the life and ministry, not just of this one church, but of every church for decades now. And that is church decline. So according to the 2014 Religious Landscape Study by Pew Research, self-identified Christians make up approximately 63% of the U.S. population, a number which, according to Gallup polling, actually increased to 69% by 2020. Now, at the same time, though, according to the same poll by Gallup, only 47% of the U.S. adult population belongs to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. That's a really a crazy figure when you take a second to think about it. 69% of the U.S. population considers itself to be Christian. But when we account for the fact that that 47% of religious attendees includes our Jewish and Muslim siblings as well, we wind up looking at something roughly in the neighborhood of 20% of the population being an active enrolled member of a Christian church. 20%. Now, now that number gets even more insane when you realize that while we are seeing a record low for belief in God in general, that low point is 81% of the population. 81%. Let's just walk through those numbers again one more time just to make sure we're not missing anything. 81% believe in God. 69% identify as Christian, but maybe 20% actually come to church. What is going on here? I mean, when we think about church decline, when we talk about it in Sunday schools and in, you know, consistory conversations and the like, we tend to discuss it and think about it like it's a rejection of belief in God, that people are turning away from their faith, turning away from their belief in Christ in an increasingly stable or secular world. But what the statistics show us is entirely the opposite. The percentage of people who self-identify as Christian has actually gone up in the last eight or nine years. God isn't the problem here. We are. Day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. According to Pew, again, 60% of those people who don't attend church, 60% of them choose not to attend for reasons other than non-belief. That is to say, they still very much have faith. They believe in Jesus. They just don't want to come to church. Why? Let's look at some other numbers. 71% of the U.S. population, across religious lines, mind you, holds that gay and lesbian relationships are morally acceptable. Again, same Gallup. And they hold that non-straight marriages are and should be legally legitimate. 
the same time, the loudest voices in our world that claim the name of Jesus in public don't just simply disagree with the broad majority, but they're actively fighting against them. So instead of a supporting, loving church in the world, we get evangelical and other cultic institutions that are fighting to actually criminalize all non-straight relationships. We get people like, uh, like Rick Warren, among many, many others, who actually flew out to Uganda specifically to advocate for legislation to make homosexuality a capital offense. We get hate speech. We get fiery sermons about sin and eternal damnation and the unending trumpet blast of hatred, disgust and dismissal from people claiming that they're just playing a piece that Jesus already composed. I mean, all right, okay, fine. Sure, it's easy for us to, to sit here and just kind of dismiss all of these things in our, in our hearts and in our heads as right-wing nonsense. It's something we don't do, we don't have a part of it, we don't support it, and it's got nothing to do with this. I mean, after all, these hate-filled, non-denominational, evangelical groups, they're not connected to us at all, and we have no say in what they do or don't do. And that's true. But as these groups have gained in popularity and power and visibility over the years, as their prominence has risen and their visibility in public has gone up a thousandfold, where have we been? The church, the God of love. With each lobbying institution founded to oppress or destroy in Jesus' name, with every political action group or congressional prayer breakfast, with every so-called revival broadcast on national television, representing the word of God as an instrument of restriction, hatred, and exclusion, where was the public response from our churches? Where was the televised statement from our denominations? The redoubled efforts to counter the rising hatred with policies and programs to foster inclusion and support and care in our communities, our nation, and in our world. Now, issues pertaining to the LGBTQIA community are, are one example, and they're an easy one to focus on, but Lord knows that this lukewarm, passive reaction has presented itself on a great many of other issues as well. Homelessness, poverty, the treatment of prisoners in our community, immigration, the treatment of refugees, on all of these things. We have long paid witness to the voice of the oppressor as they wielded the name of Christ Jesus as a cudgel to keep down anyone who would seek justice, peace, and relief. But where were we? For a lot of us, the answer is honestly very simple. We were at church. Uh, now, I've made no secret of the fact that I grew up in the church. I was raised in one of the kind of conservative hubs of the RCA in the North. And this church that I grew up in, man, it was a perfect example of exactly the sort of thing I'm talking about. Whenever there was something happening in the, in the community or the world, some issue on which the church might, just might, through practical action, dedication, hard work, deliberate effort, have some kind of positive effect our church community, like a lot of others, would leap into immediate action. We'd host a prayer breakfast or, or, or a fast or a very special worship service. You know, th there was a period back in the 90s when every church in the RCA was really just inexplicably up in arms about poverty in Africa for some reason. And I'm pretty sure that our church, at least the church I grew up with, we did a 30-hour famine roughly every 36 hours for something like three weeks straight. It was nuts. And in that period of time, we heard sermon after sermon 
on the passages we're talking about today. Lights were placed on lampstands, bushel baskets were brought into church to be just demonstrably kicked over, and there was just salt thrown around everywhere. Though, in retrospect, that last part might have had something to do with the Michigan winters, but, you know, I digress. Uh, we talked a good game, we really did, about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and all that. Our church was active, constantly engaged, talking, fasting, worshiping, and praying constantly. Of course, <laughs> it wouldn't be a story about me growing up in the church if I didn't wind up getting in trouble for being just wildly impertinent at some point. And that point arrived when after a time I asked, perhaps more pointedly than a preteen probably ought to, what, if anything, we were actually accomplishing with all of the things we were doing. I mean, we would pray, we would fast, and we would worship, and we would read the Bible, and we would sing all the spiritual songs, and we would cover ourselves in sackcloth and ash, but it seemed as though everything we did was just conveniently contained neatly within the walls of our church. Where, I asked, was the protesting, the, the fundraising, the acts of practical justice and direct personal support for the people who were suffering and oppressed and part of these groups? Where was the visiting of the prisoner, the feeding of the hungry? Why were we having youth group meetings where we discussed amongst ourselves how hard it had to be to be homeless in our community? But why did we never once see so much as a cot set up in the gym during the coldest months of the year? What were we doing? Now the response I got to that question was honestly probably what most of you might expect. A rolling of the eyes and a reminder that as a member of the younger, less experienced generation, that my understanding of the ways and means of the Christian faith were still limited and that as a Christian I was still very much in need of seasoning. I would be fed with an attitude of some general grumpiness, some vaguely theological non-answers that sounded pretty and quoted some scripture or another, uh, but didn't actually say anything of merit. We prayed and we sung and we preached and we fasted because that was what churches were meant to do, to stay in our lane, to draw spiritually nearer to God in all things to the exclusion of all else. That, as I was told, was what it meant to let our light shine, to be unafraid to talk about God amongst ourselves and to practice spiritual discipline in our own personal lives, privately. But while this passage from Matthew that we have today, if we take it in isolation, it may leave enough interpretive space for that kind of an understanding to I don't know, roll through like an unattended semi-truck with the brakes out pointed directly at a preschool. But when we take it in the context of Isaiah, and really all the other prophets that share this understanding of God's role in our world, we start to see just how wrong-footed this understanding of what God wants and who God is really is. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be like noonday. Take this understanding from Isaiah this very practical, very directed understanding of what it means to give service to the Lord, what it means to really let your light shine out in the darkness, bold and visible like a city on a hilltop. Sit with that for just a moment 
Keep that in the back of your head and for just a second, look backwards over the last 20, 30, 40 years of church life. Not just here, but not even just in our denomination, but really as mainline Protestant Christians in general. Look back on all of that period of time and ask yourself one simple question. What has the church, what have we really been doing all this time? Over the years, uh, I've watched as my generation has continued to ask where God is and where God's people are in our lives. For many of us, in, in my generation at least, we've grown up watching family and friends suffer through oppression and hatred in the world. We've seen people we care about pushed aside as hateful ideologies, things like racism, inexplicable hatred towards interracial marriage, condemnation of the immigrant and the refugee, homophobia, and so many of the other things that we were taught were relics of an archaic and bygone past. All of these things exploded into resurgence, all while the people we most expected to be vocal and active in opposition in the name of Christ, the church itself stood idly by in the name of fearful conflict avoidance, agreeing to disagree in the hopes that the pews might remain full and the coffers might not run dry. Now these younger people, which the church still asks after pretty constantly, spent years turning their eyes to the Church of Jesus like the Rohirrim looking for Gandalf on the coming of the fifth day, waiting for that beauteous heavenly light to break forth like the shattering of a dam, only to be greeted not with welcome, support, or the thundering charge of God's people storming to the rescue, but only that deafening sound of silence. Nearly every church and community around this country, there was little to no speaking out, no protesting, no fighting back. When LGBTQIA kids were cast out into the streets by their families, when non-white members of the community were beaten and murdered by the police, when the economy collapsed and poverty spiked, when the wealthy took everything that wasn't nailed down, did we hear the sound of the church rising up in righteous anger, braiding their whips into cords and charging in with bread for the hungry, clothes for the naked, ready to loose the bonds of injustice being tied around us all? Or did we hear that tepid silence of a people so afraid to risk losing the few who have gathered in church that they missed the masses gathering just outside, waiting for the coming of Christ Jesus into the world? Did we find ourselves so afraid of controversy, so afraid of conflict, of angry letters, of the twisted menace of conservative online wrath, that we sought refuge for ourselves in the halls of those practices that we knew would be safe? choosing vigils, ceremonies, worships, and fast after fast after fast, just so we could take some kind of action without ever courting any risk to ourselves? Did we choose the fast that kept us out of harm's way, safely hidden under a bushel so we wouldn't have to bear the risk that comes with giving light to the whole house? Is this not the fast I chose? to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Doing all these things and 
doing them with the, the boldness that both prophets and Christ ask of us, it's, man, it's risky. It is so much easier to hide ourselves away from all of our suffering kin and wrap ourselves up in the comforting embrace of the church sanctuary, surrounded by all the prayers and rituals and practices and fasts that give us comfort. And it's easy to tell ourselves that we're still shining out like the dawn because, well, all that praying, all that fasting, all that stuff, it's got to do something, right? I mean, we're putting in just so much effort. How can we be doing anything but giving light to the whole house? But, you know, that's the thing. A light under a bucket still shines. In fact, when you put a candle under a bucket, it actually has to expend more energy just to shine less brightly because it's using up all of the oxygen around it. A light under a bucket isn't doing nothing, it's doing nothing effective because it has turned in on itself. But when you rip off the bucket, when you put your light right up there on a lampstand, you may shine so much the brighter, yes, but you'll also be way more visible. A city on a hill absolutely cannot be hid, but boy, does it make a really obvious tempting target for a nearby trebuchet. Being the light of the world, man, it's risky business. It opens us up to all kinds of conflict and loss and hurt. It puts us in harm's way, leaves us vulnerable to attacks on our character, attacks on our reputation, even attacks on our person. Being the light of the world means extending ourselves outward from our places of comfort and security, shifting our priorities away from those safe and easy things that we can do and towards those risky and difficult things that we should do for the benefit of all those who don't have the privilege of choosing a less risky path for themselves. Not too long ago, uh, a very wise friend of mine asked me to consider whether the most important missing piece of being a church in the modern age isn't actually service and social involvement or care for our weak and wounded neighbor, but an embracing of the transcendence of Almighty God. The ways in which our Creator steps past all the, the boundaries of the real and the rational to rest comfortably in the camps of irrational and illogical grace. Now this friend of mine put forth the idea that maybe the most successful churches today, at, at least those who don't embrace that dark and sickly attractiveness of hateful ideologies. Maybe these churches might have gained their success not just by being a practical benefit to the people around them, but because they unashamedly opened themselves up and others to the unimaginable magnificence of God, not only in word and deed, but through that ineffable presence of something far greater than we can comprehend. Now, in no way am I gonna argue with this friend of mine, because I, I happen to agree exactly with everything he said. Coming into communion with a God whose love is so great and so powerful that it cannot be contained within the paltry borders of the real and the known is, honestly, for most of us, the point at which our faith began. But as we come to a close today, I want to ask you to consider one last and final idea. Our world, right at this moment, is going through a period where there are a greater number of people in and around our communities that are suffering, isolated, and in pain. There are people surrounding us who have been perpetually told for all of their lives that they are failed, faulty, broken, 
and unworthy. People told again and again by the great hordes of people claiming the name of Jesus that being a minority makes you worthy of violence, that being a member of the LGBTQIA community makes you deserving of scorn, that being poor makes you worthy of life of desperation, hunger, and fear. Imagine, just for a moment, what it's like to live that kind of life, to find no rest or relief in a church that seems to deny your very existence, or to find only stress and anxiety in the songs of our ancestors and the prayers of generations past. Imagine looking to the church with the tearful, upturned eyes of an abuse victim just waiting for that next blow to fall. Imagine having a heart so full of the desire for God, a need to know and share in that transcendent experience of connection that only your creator can provide, but having shown up to find the doors of God's church closed to you and yours. Imagine being part of that 81% of Americans who believe, or even part of that 69% who self-identify as Christian, but aren't able to find a home among the maybe 20% that have found their way into our midst. Imagine how transcendent an experience it might be to be among those many, to find yourself turning your eyes up to the hills in, in desperation, wondering from where any help might ever come, only to hear the sound of God's people charging forward across the horizon, armed with food and clothing and housing and education and resources and love and support and all those things that you have been denied for your entire life. How close might God feel to you in that moment if you saw the community of God's people surround you with love and support and turn their eyes to the darkness with a smirk saying, not today, not on my watch. My friends, let's go forth, let's go out to live and serve that transcendent, loving, merciful, and unending Christ, bearing gladly all the risks of a light on a great stand, of a city on a hilltop, of a people who embrace the controversy of the Lord with gladness, with determination, and a willingness to join in the fast that God chooses to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free. Amen.